0: Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a a controversial story.
1: I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. There are an awful lot of ways to get into journalism and so far on this podcast we've heard from Pete Carl, Carroll, whose love of mixed martial arts was what got him hooked, and Salome Anderson who has a masters in the subject and is a tremendous conflict reporter. The people I looked up to and who started my dreams of journalism were in the areas of sport and music and in Ireland in the 1980s we were blessed with a number of sharp pens that were well worth the cover price of the magazines. That was where I first came across the work of acclaimed screenwriter and father Ted creator Graham Linehan, who started out his career writing reviews for Hot Press magazine. Like many of us, Graham is an accidental journalist, someone who found themselves with a talent, a voice, and a platform that ended up having to do most of his journalistic growing up in public. I started by asking him what it was that attracted him to it. Well, um, I, I at that point
0: I, I was reading the music press quite voraciously and and uh, I had a kind of uh, exalted uh, uh, view of the journalists who were <laughs> working in the music press. I thought they were great, um, and I thought the best and coolest thing to do would be to be one of them. and the, And the, the places I really wanted to get to was the Enemy and the Melody Maker. I uh, you know they were at that point they were writing a very kind of amusingly pretentious style but 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 there was always some great stuff in there and there were some there were some people who even even if they did have that slightly pretentious edge, they were also great writers and and I found reading them really exciting and um, so anyway that was happening and then and then I I was like I think I was 18 and um, and I was in a in a a, a college studying communications and uh, it was just kind of going along. Normal year of all that stuff, and I was doing all the things I was supposed to do. But then Damien Corliss came into the journalism class above above us. Damien worked for Hot Press; mm-hmm. he was the deputy editor at the time, I think. And um, and I I I actually told him a lie. I told him that I that I had written a few reviews, and would he like to uh, would he like to see them? And he said yes. And I I ran home and I wrote them and I brought them in the next day and, uh, and they published two or three of them, something like that, you know, they actually published them. So it was, um, it was, it was a dream for me. I mean, I have to admit, I wasn't a huge fan of Hot Press at the time uh, because they, their music coverage was, was quite hippie-ish I'd I'd say. I hope that's not an unfair thing to say, Um, but uh, it was uh, not really what I was into, but, 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 they were so nice that you know they they allowed me to create a space within there that was that was full of all that stuff you know so um, so you know even though I was a bit sniffy going in Hot Press was very generous to me and um, and uh, you know gave me a lot of space to develop a style.
1: Uh, For the listeners outside of Ireland or who don't have a sort of a background there, let me tell you the Hot Press was probably the music magazine and still is the music magazine in the country there and it was hugely influential solely because we didn't really have anything else as well, you know, so uh, and I remember, you're a couple of years older than me, Graham, and I remember sort of looking up to people like yourself and to Damien and to Jackie Hayden and, you know, Stuart Clark as in there, so it was a brilliant school for writers but did Niall Stokes, who was the editor think at the time uh, when, when you were in there um d- did anybody ever say to you okay you could do this better did they coach you on what you wrote or did they just print it every week regardless was there any editing process where they tried to make you a better journalist that's a really good question no there wasn't
0: really they were very hands-off um but they would occasionally say things like i remember Liam MacKey. was it Mackey who said this oh i can't i can't remember but someone just said something like Someone said, just said something like, um, you know, I said, I said, this album blazed across the sky or some some such nonsense. And and someone said, there's a lot of things blazing across the sky in your life, isn't it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is it albums, films? <laughs> and it was true. It was true. I had this... Um, Instinctive thing to write to extremes, and and uh, you know when you do that, the problem with it is that the next review has to be even more mm. over the top, and and so I, they're kind of they, they, I would say throughout all of Hot Press there was a a thin strain of of deep deeply sardonic sardonic humor. Mm. You know, they were the most cynical people in the world, and and you simply could not. You couldn't you couldn't help but absorb that a little bit, and and that helped. So it was more of an atmospheric um, uh, quality that Hot Press gave me that I kind of just absorbed by
1: osmosis, you know. I was going to say that that was the word I was looking for was osmosis there because you go in there and whether you know it or not, you learn from them because you know you're working with brilliant photographers, you're working with great writers, and that you know Bill Graham, of course. Was Bill was that before your time or was that the same time oh, as you? Bill were there? Was
0: there. Yeah, Bill was. There. I never really got any sense out of Bill. I, Bill was really funny. I
1: couldn't, I, we kind of were able to talk to each other, but not really. He was just in another world. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But but he was an incredible man. I mean, you know, when you write, read what he wrote every week, you know, you could only learn by doing that. But when when you were studying communications, uh, was a journalist something you wanted to be or were you sort of filling in the time going, you know, I'm 18, 19, 20, you know, I don't even know what I want to do yet. Or did you always fancy yourself as a guy with a byline?
0: No, I I didn't think journalism was going to be it. I I can't remember what I thought. What did I think at that stage? I I I think my 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 desire was to become a director, but but it was it was a desire that came from not really knowing what a director was.
1: Yeah. You
0: no, know, I just knew that Steven Spielberg was one and Woody Allen was one, and I liked I liked them, and I and Martin Scorsese was one. I didn't really know what it involved. You know this this silly. Authorish idea of being a director. It was, it was, I don't know why, but but I locked onto that and communication seemed like a way to get there. Um uh so then you know when journalism happened, it actually turned turned out bizarrely to take me back to what I originally really wanted to do. Um uh but in a very roundabout way.
1: Mm. Um in terms of that, then, did you find because obviously your perspective changes when you've become a journalist, right? You're not just a reader anymore, you're a writer. You're trying to work out okay, they're giving me space in this magazine every week, and I've got to entertain people and inform people with that. Did that change the way you looked at how you communicated? So, did it have any relevance to the education that you'd previously done? I don't know. Again,
0: that's really. Could you ask me that question again? because I just, I just want to take it in properly because it's a very good question and I want to consider
1: it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose what I'm asking you is uh, did journalism change your perspective on what you wanted to do and how you communicate with the world? Essentially, what I'm really asking you about is how you tell a story because, you know, you write a review for something, the person hasn't heard this album, right? But you're trying to communicate the feeling of that album and how that album made you feel and what they should possibly think about in a purchase and that kind of thing. But you have to put that into words and you might have 200, 300, 400 words. So did it change your perspective on how to, to communicate
0: well um not really because my perspective on how to communicate uh, in that way was was gathered from reading the melody maker and the enemy and all these you know that i i had a very strong idea also hunter s thompson and mm-hmm. and 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 uh, what's his name uh, wolf uh, you know loads of people journalists i loved especially gonzo journalists yeah. you know i was a huge fan of uh, oh what's his bloody name i've forgotten his name it's so long since I've thought about him. I've forgotten his name. Oh, brilliant American American music journalist who, who was just, who just wrote about people like the um, uh, 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 people like the Stooges and uh, what was his bloody name?
1: The MC Five oh, and all these guys. I think I know who you're talking about, but I'm not going to hazard a guess. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, so annoying. But anyway, he would write these these pieces that were that were not only like full of of the excitement of the music but also kind of latching it onto a, a social uh a social uh uh justice or economic mm-hmm. uh, uh viewpoint you know so he would he would go into someone like like the mc5 and talk about detroit and how it yeah. spawned and stuff like that i found all that stuff really thrilling and um, my stuff was never as as grounded as that but but you know i i i just wanted to I I think one of the things that I did, one of the early ways I developed my voice was I used to be obsessed with Woody Allen. Yeah. Woody Allen's journalism for the uh, New Yorker was, was, you know, was just these silly little pieces. A lot of them you can, you can see went on to become films like bananas and love and death, you know? Um, And, and these pieces were just very, very wittily written uh, uh, very ironic and, and self-deprecating and that voice was something that I used to use when I did uh, debates in, in school you know I used to just I, I just used to tell jokes about myself I just used to make fun of myself yeah. and and then um, I was able to carry that into the journalism so so in one way no I would say my you know I definitely knew I wanted to keep people um, interested but uh, I definitely had a few theories on how I could do that, and 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 I I kind of carried them out. You know, I mean, none of this was planned or thought about. It was just no, it was what I was doing. You know. Yeah. But yeah. There, there was something else that you just reminded me of. Yeah, I, I will say this though: there there's a few lessons that I really wish I had learned at that age, and 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 if 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 I had learned them, I would have been a better journalist and a better writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beyond that, I probably have a few bloody novels to my name now. (laughs) Wouldn't we all?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But would you mind sharing, is there any one of those or two of those that might spring to mind now, things you wish you'd known?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you the big one that I wish I'd known, which was
1: the way I used to, I used
0: to have a a typewriter, you know, it was was the days of typewriters and uh, it was my prized possession. I loved it. Huge, heavy industrial thing that my dad, I think, had taken from a secretary at his work. You know, <laughs> um, massive. You couldn't shift it. It was, it was great. And when you whacked the keys, it really made it. It, it made music. You know, yeah. it was great. You felt like Wal- Walter Winchell. You know, mm. but, but, but um, the way I would write was, was I would, I would write out one line that made me laugh or something, yeah. and I'd look at it and I think, yeah and I would tear it up, throw the paper away, roll it again, <laughs> and then I'd write. Uh, that line again, with maybe a slight rewrite, rewrite, and then I'd move on to the second sentence. Yep. And if I didn't like that, I tear it out, throw it away, think again. I would write like that. So, so a two hundred word review would take me all night. You right. know, I mean, so sometimes you know it just flowed and it was great. But but if I ever had to put put proper thought into it, like let's say it was a major review. Yeah. Oh my God, it would nightmarish for me writing it. You know and what i didn't realize is is the the thing that i now you know live by which is the first draft doesn't have to be any good at all yeah. you know it just has to exist mm-hmm. and once the first draft exists you take it you rework it you rewrite it you throw it away even yeah. you know but but you don't you use it to get past that point of Rolling up paper and throwing it away.
1: <laughs> many trees died to bring you Graham's first many series on the telly. <laughs>
0: many trees died, but I, I will say there was a kind of grinding uh, aspect to that that probably did make me a better writer. You know, sometimes yeah. when I when I when I hit the right sentence, I could feel it. You know, and, yeah. and I picked that up uh, to some extent. But but um, if I learned it a bit earlier, I, writing wouldn't come as difficult. To me, as it does now, it, it, it's always hard for me. I, I writing is is uh, hard and it, it shouldn't be as hard as, as it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think we make it hard in ourselves a lot of the time as well, though, you know, because you know, you're know you trying to read, and that was actually my next question to you, was how hard did you find it to find your own voice and to express that voice? Because the people you're reading, if you're talking about Hunter S. Thompson, you're talking about very individual styles. You don't want to be seen as sort of, you know, a copy-paste version of that. And I, I remember your writing as being very humorous and as being very colourful and that kind of thing. And I often thought, Christ, how does he do it every two weeks to come up with that? But did it take? did it take you a long time to sort of to fine tune that and to make it into something that you could call upon? No, it was it was just uh, it was just look, you know, I just kind of I think I read
0: a lot. So I had an, I I kind of had a feel for what read well and what didn't read well. I, I had a feel for how something is funny on the page you know mm-hmm. the kind of effect it has on you simply from reading woody allen and robert benchley and lots yeah. of other comic writers who i really love and clive james i would read clive james his tv reviews just to get in the mood you yeah. know because it was so musical and, and and had so many different ways of opening a sentence like that's what i, I would just think how can i write a sentence that my i always wants to be original and i always wants to be interesting yeah and my thought was how can i write a sentence that's never been Written in that way before, yeah, and and and, uh, oddly enough, Clive James would help you do that because Clive James would just give you, would I mean, really, he he, Clive James would give you a a billion ways to open a sentence, you know. just woke you up. It woke up that part of your brain, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I do the opposite because I do a lot of work for sort of, you know, straightforward news agency reporting and you're actually not allowed to do that, right? Just tell the story, get out. <laughs> Is that what happened that's to you as well? That's
0: what happened to me. I went over to England because uh, because Dave, a guy called Dave Kavanagh at Select Magazine yep. Uh, yep. asked me to come over and write for Select. And on literally the first day I was there, we got a memo saying something like, uh the following things are not allowed in a piece (laughs) and and one of them was you can't use the word i that that was out the window completely that was god and that was like my atom bomb that was the weapon (laughs) that was the that was everything was i because i would make fun of myself i was talking about my, my personal reactions to things i was trying to i was trying to uh uh, d- uh, uh, describe the, the physicality sometimes of how things make make me feel. You know when I listen to them and all that sort of thing, but it, and that was all gone. It was just gone, you know. And uh, as a result, I don't know. I mean, I struggled through and wrote some okay things for Select, but but generally, I I I didn't feel the same kind of liberated um, uh, um, pleasure that I that I did writing for Select that I did. Writing for a hot
1: press. Yeah, I mean it's a sort of a privilege as well when you're given the space for your own opinions and as you develop that voice, you know, people read they open the newspaper, they open the magazine to read Graham Linnon or to read whoever else. I've I've actually I only just wrote an article for a Swedish magazine there about a woman who's just written a book and uh, I interviewed her and I used the I that you were saying was banned at select. I never use that because nobody gives a shit what I think about anything essentially. For most that's of, what they would say, yeah. yeah. That's what, so, so I have to report the news. I'm not. I'm not the news, you know. So I just have to go and report it. So that's no bother to me. I find it much easier to sit down then because I can just pull these things out. Oh, of course, it's a, it's a different type of journalism,
0: you know. And it's of, yep. it's, it's you know, obviously, my voice would not suit that at all, you know. Yeah. So, so you, you know.
1: So you went in a different direction then from select. Did did you kind of fall out of love with journalism then, when you were sort of, you know, to use the, the favorite phrase yeah. of the all right, when you were silenced, when your voice was silenced. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was around that point that I that I kind of thought maybe maybe we'll give the comedy a go because because you know we had we had uh, we 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 were quite uh, me and Arthur were quite um, uh, uh, confident about that you know yeah. we thought you know we can make people we can make you you know when you're around the the, the hot press people you, when you can make them laugh you've really achieved something oh yeah you know it yeah. used to be you know um, I don't know to like anymore but but, <laughs> but 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 you know that that's um, uh that gave us a, a real confidence you know and uh and I felt much more confident with Arthur on my side than I did on my own in in these magazines you know
1: yeah uh, it's a different kind of writing uh, in a way it's not because you know you're still trying to entertain and that kind of thing but say when you sit down to write a script and one of the things I've learned a lot from your twitter feed I mean I think you've suggested I don't know how many books to me and uh, most of them are sort of sitting here beside me I still haven't got around to reading any of them but uh, if they're still you know they're great things to have when I was writing a novel there last about two years ago and there was some book that turned up in your twitter feed about character arcs that's the one uh, and that one I, I read that one it kind of changed everything that I've done in terms of fiction and um, how much sort of studying went into that did you you sort of go and get scripts out of the library how did you find out how to do this
0: how to how to write scripts yeah um uh well i would i would buy those ones you buy um you know just from bookshops like for instance the um and Laurie's book of sketches you yep. know and, and i only realized later on that these these books were usually written by someone dictating from the screen so it wasn't quite what you really want which is you want to see uh you know the layout and how these things are written for an actual script you know so so once i started finding them and 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 getting my hands on them uh yeah i really i really learned a lot from how to um uh from seeing them formatted even you know even that was useful and you know I, i would read the odd script books i i generally didn't really um Script, those books about how to write scripts and stuff, I gen—I think there are some really, really excellent ones, yeah. but I think uh, in the early days, I think you really should avoid them, yeah. you know? The only one that I thought was, was, one of the few that I really, really thought was worth reading was uh, called How Not to Write a Script. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, books, I would say people should buy books with titles like How Not to Write Scripts, How Not to Do It, whatever, yeah. because, one of the frustrating things when you're reading someone else's script is seeing all these basic things that should have been taken care of before, you know, you the person even dreamed of sending it to someone. Yep. Do you know? What I mean? yep. Those are the things that make reading scripts very, very difficult. So, <laughs> so when you read a book like um, how not to write 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 write, uh, write a script, you get tips like, you know, don't have one character called Felicia and another character called Veronica yeah. You know, because their names look similar on the page yeah. and you'll find it hard to remember who's who at any one point. Mm-hmm. So call one Joan and the other Veronica. Yeah. There. they now, now you're clear. Yeah. Things like that are really important and people don't think they are, but but they're so important. They make reading they like you can I can I've I've been given scripts and it's literally taken me months to get through ten pages. Yeah. So many problems, yep. you know, and you don't know where to begin because you can't. Someone just said, "Oh, could you have a look at this script?" You're like, "Yes," and and they send it over, and you're going, "Oh, what do I say about this?" There's so much stuff to talk about. Yeah, you know. So, for me, if you if you if you are going to start off with something like that, that gives you very basic tips about formatting and pace and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and then maybe when you've got a bit more experience. I would say move on to things like, you know, Robert McKee, uh, who he's, he's dead. Don't see his bloody, his presentation too early. I saw it when I was starting off and, oh my God, Robert McKee should be, should be kept away <laughs> under lock and key from young writers. You oh know, Lord. he's great. He's great, but he's a reverse engineer and you can't teach people how to do something by reverse engineering it. No, exactly. I,
1: I mean one of the things that I I often get asked to talk about journalism especially in Irish colleges because people would know me from Irish media and I realised a while ago that what I actually do there is I get up there and I tell them pretty much all the mistakes I've made and how much money they cost me and it actually gets it across because people go okay and still to this day two three five years after you've given a lecture to somebody they'll they'll always tell you that they wear headphones when they're doing video interviews because I fucked up one with only going to Shower one time to cost me a fortune you know so uh, that may be the how not to write a script sounds like a brilliant idea, One of the things I want to ask you about Graham as well, because you know we're not going to go over Father Ted. You've told that story a million times, and I'm sure you'll have to tell it again with the musical. But but you became very much a public figure with that, right? So rather you went from being a journalist to being a scriptwriter to being the subject of journalism, right? And now in the sort of the social media age, because you're quite active on Twitter and, and that kind of thing, uh you you can make a tweet or that kind of thing, and people will write a story about it. And you got involved in the repeal the eighth movement and that kind of thing. So what I wanted to ask you about, because you live in England as well, you live in the sort of the heart of the tabloid media culture, what's it like to be on the receiving end of, of journalism? What's it like to be the sort of the target for people with pens? And long lenses? Uh,
0: well, you know, I, I would say long lenses is more the Kardashian style of thing. I haven't reached that point yet. <laughs> um, uh, but but um, uh, as far as journalism goes, well, it's just one of those things that, one of the one of the worst things about it is that, I'll give you the, the example that, that rubs me up the wrong way every time is people throwing around the term canned laughter, you know? Yeah. People still f- think that Father Ted w- was was canned and, you know, we, we shot every episode in front of a studio audience and and the same with IT Crowd and the same with Count Arthur Strong, all these shows. And yet, every new series I bring out, journalists say the canned laughter is this, the canned laughter is that, you know? Yeah. And the thing that kind of really gets me about it is I always think if someone who works as a TV writer can get something like that wrong does not know that it's a real audience mm. then how many other journalists in how many other fields are getting similar things wrong that the you know the people being spoken about would say that's not true yeah you know and and that has been a little bit sometimes you just I, I it's why I, I just do, I never repress you yeah. know because it's like Wikipedia someone said oh someone said oh someone's uh, vandalized your Wikipedia page I don't care you know (laughs) I spend all my time on Wikipedia correcting it I go insane and and same with the journalists you know it's just You cannot defeat it. As long as there's nothing defamatory, who the fuck cares, you know?
1: But of course, there is that classic about Father Ted, and this is, it doesn't matter how many times you or Arthur say it, you can say it until you go to the grave, but everybody still thinks that RTE turned it down. Have you any (laughs) idea where that story came from?
0: Um, I would, I don't know. I would say it probably came from a kind of half-understood, uh, a, ha- a half-remembered knowledge of Dermot's problems with RTE yeah. combined with the thing that everybody has in their heads that the actors write it somehow.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. D- Dermot is Ted. He wrote all those lines. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. And I think that that kind of, that all kind of morphed into into this kind of rumour, you know. Um, uh, because, yeah, as you say it's, it's not true. As Arthur always said, and I love quoting him on it, um, why would we have given it charity? That would have been like giving it to Waterford Glass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a brilliant
0: quote. Um, cor- I- yeah, and, and, and the point is simply that there just wasn't an infrastructure to make a show yeah. like that. Yeah. We we, if we didn't want it to be an utter humiliation, we needed uh, proper production values uh, uh, and a culture of making comedy TV shows,
1: Yeah, you know? So that was where it had to go to Channel 4, basically, to be done, right? Yeah, it
0: had to go to Channel 4 or BBC. Someone like
1: that who could handle it. A brief interruption to let you know that this podcast and everything else that I publish on Patreon is free, but if you can afford uh, the price of a cup of coffee or a pint every month, please do support me. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash in Stockholm. And now back to Graham Linehan. <laughs> Um, of course, your your private life uh, yourself and Helen has been brought up um, in the recent abortion referendum in Ireland and that kind of thing. I think did you am I correct in saying that you wrote right, an article? Yeah, exactly. You wrote an article, I think, for for the Guardian, if I if I remember rightly. Um, how did you? What was your experience like on social media after that? Because I can't imagine that it was entirely positive, given the how the debate turned out.
0: It was okay, actually. I mean, the thing about it for me is that um, I. I loved when these guys uh, on the uh, anti-repeal side would would show their would would show their real faces. You yeah. know, people were writing things, you know, horrible things to to Helen and me. It was it was you know I I loved showing showing it to people and saying look at what's actually at the heart of of this. Yeah. It's not a respect for women or love both. It's nothing like that. It's yeah. something it's something cold and, and, and nasty and, 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 you know, uh, not everyone falls under this, but, but, but very, very often, I think there's a kind of evil aspect to it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that it didn't bother me. And I, I was very, very, very happy to continually be able to, to, to remind people and living in England as well to say, you know, to say to English people, you know, isn't it, a, isn't it a, scandal that there's a part of your country that's that's ostensibly your country that that still hasn't got abortion you know mm. and and being in that position is 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 great you know i i love being able to draw as much attention to that as as as, as we were able to you know
1: yeah.
0: uh, but you know i mean so many people you know did, did, did such an amazing job during that that that, uh, um, that whole time, you know, it, it's silly to even concentrate on one thing. You know, there so, so many lovely. stories, you know, of, of people who, you know, they're, they're, they're all that stuff about your baby coming home in a fucking jiff, jiffy bag or whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah.
1: You couldn't ignore it, you know. You just couldn't ignore it. No, you kind of have to get involved there. Um, one of the things that I want to ask you about as well is because, you know, you live, obviously, I think you live in Norwich, is it? Just as uh, just a... Yeah. Um, so how do you experience uh, English culture, English media, British culture? Because you seem to be, to me anyway, to be a sort of a voracious uh, consumer of media. You always seem to be sort of uh, on the button when it comes to reading, you know, whatever's out there and that kind of thing. So what what does a typical day look like for you? Do you open your Twitter as soon as you get up in the morning and then go chasing links for stuff to find out about? Or do you listen to Radio 4? Or what do you do?
0: No, that was the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I just go on Twitter. I mean, it's not good. I don't think it's a good thing. But yep. I go on Twitter and I just see what's happening. And and uh, and you know, for me, it's. I mean, I mean, as far as a, a, a writer goes, a writer like myself who's always been interested in the surface of things to, to to some extent. You know, I think comedy writers as well. You'll find that they know a little bit about about a lot of things you know they know just enough to make a joke about it and then nothing (laughs) else you know and so and so twitter with the way you can kind of float along the surface of things and then find something interesting and dive deep down into it and Mm -hmm. and uh, you know i mean it's so compelling you know uh it's turned into an absolute nightmare of course you know of toxicity from from the left and the right you know but it's still it's still the only game in town, really, as far as I could see. You know.
1: Yeah, it seems to me that um, I, I think it was Joel Schineman, the Swedish actor. He put out something about the upcoming Swedish election this morning, and I noticed that his Twitter is really small, but his Instagram is huge. But to be honest, as a journalist, I've never really copped Instagram. I don't see what it would be any use to me for. You know, it doesn't yeah. seem like a, a platform for discussion. I know you debate people about some, pretty much everything on there, and that you and that kind of thing. But Instagram, I don't know. It just like it is a Kardashian thing. It's look, look at me having my yeah, breakfast. Like, my
0: wife, my wife, uh, 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 likes it. I think someone said Instagram is where you put nice things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but the that's, dark, the darker side of the human well, soul. With <laughs> the darker, doesn't go on Instagram. No, it certainly does not. Um, if you look at you know your life at the moment, you've come sort of through a career in journalism. Uh, writing for television, now writing a musical for the stage to bring Father Ted to the stage and that kind of thing. Where do you see it all going in terms of the way we consume the media, what we use it for? Because you'll obviously be using it to publicise the Father Ted uh, musical that's coming up and that kind of thing. What's your relationship like to it and where would you like to see it going in the future? The media in general? Yeah.
0: Um, well, it's there's an it's an interesting time at the moment in terms of I mean, the thing that that I'm most curious about is is how uh, you've you've had the the great monolithic structures kind of uh, splitting up uh, into things, you know. So, so that for instance, with with the amount of streaming services, you've got you've got this kind of revolution in television. But the interesting thing at the moment is that I don't think it's actually that good a revolution. Don't, don't <laughs> Whisper think. it, Graham. You'll have us all out of a job. <laughs> the thing is, if you look at a show like like uh, Breaking Bad and and, and um, uh, uh, The Sopranos, both of those shows, they they came through the uh, uh, a, a very kind of. Um, you know, HBO was 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 loose, I guess, with, with their creators, but it always felt that with HBO, there was still a kind of sense of control that, that meant that everything was of a very high standard. Yeah. But sometimes I look at Netflix stuff and, and I think, w- I wish someone had said no to this person <laughs> at some point. I wish someone had said, don't do that joke, it's not very good, yep. you know, or something like that. I, I, I feel that a lot, and I feel that at the moment, the, the kind of wide open aspect is both good and bad. There's a lot more uh, places to get your stuff, but um, but but you really do have to be a lot more disciplined with yourself. You have yeah. to you you have to kind of pretend there's a there's a cigar chewing uh, money guy. Uh, on your shoulder saying but no one will laugh (laughs) you know I think that that's kind of a useful guy to have sometimes
1: yeah I kind of got the same opinion when the whole blogging revolution started and everybody had a WordPress site and that and I was going okay uh, Pat O'Mahony I'm sure you know Pat from your time at uh, Hot Press and that he always had this thing of uh, you know uh, like if you're going to write something unless you'd like to see it on a billboard outside your mother's house think twice about it you know and this kind of thing because you know you can put it out there and there's no editor there Saying or there's no producer or no director of programming saying you know what you may not want to do this and I think yeah, it's a absolutely. it's a huge huge pitfall especially for people starting off who've never had that kind of thing you know
0: I always say it to people I always say I always say don't put everything online just put the good stuff just put the stuff that really really works yeah. because if you if you say have a brilliant brilliant uh, article and you put it up and someone goes to your page and finds ten other articles that are full of them, bollocks then <laughs> then you're dead you're doomed you yep. know fair enough write a load of bollocks but don't necessarily post it all up yeah. you don't, be, don't be proud of it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know sit on it read it back wait a couple of weeks and then read it again to make see if it still makes sense see if all the things you wrote are still funny all the all the you know does it read well all that sort of thing then put it online it's just it's it, there's and then even then maybe not maybe keep it maybe it's not ready maybe just maybe do something else i I just think that I just think that I know I know one guy for instance uh, a friend of mine and he uh makes all these videos and stuff and he often put posts the the failures you know yeah. he posts the, he, he'll say oh this doesn't quite work but I but I filmed it and, and here it is and it's like why are you showing it to people you know <laughs> just you know you're just boring them and you're making yourself look like you're not a genius. Yeah, you know? you're cheapening it. Yeah, if you, I, I, people will think you're a genius if you just don't show them all the shite.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. Well, it's kind of like that thing of you know this thing of behind the scenes now everything has to be behind the scenes. I've got to look at yeah. you know this is a, I do a lot of commentating on extreme sports events. I don't want anybody seen like you know under the desk where I'm sitting there in shorts on a summer's day and it's fucking sweltering in the
0: studio. That, that's you know I I, I try now to not put. Um, deleted scenes on dvds won't do that if 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 i can avoid it um and you know it's all this extra st- easter eggs someone said on twitter the other day easter eggs why not why not just write a good script you mm-hmm. know what i mean who needs, who needs easter eggs just write a good script tell us a story yeah know?
1: exactly so, yeah. I, w- I wonder actually it may already have happened but say hot press was to digitize all the years that you were working there and put the stuff online what would the graham linhon of today say about the articles that he wrote back then
0: I have to say that is my sheer. That is my good <laughs> You'll notice that whenever anyone sends me an old art where I never retweet it. I just, I just say, "Oh, thanks for that," and I don't say anything. No, it's, it's. You know, I think I once wrote. I think I once wrote something like, "There was very good directing in it," or something. I don't know. I, I could not write. I mean, I could, but I also couldn't. And seeing those moments where I couldn't are. It's too much. It's just too too bad, too awful. Yeah.
1: But I think the thing is, though, that you grew up in public. You arrived in there and Damien Corliss published two reviews off the bat and that kind of thing. And now, all of a sudden, you have to keep delivering it every week. So all your mistakes are going to be public. <clears throat> Yeah, And I remember, I mean, on occasion, I'll have to sort of Google my own name to find an article. And like, you know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, because I've written about him before. And I look at an article that will come up on Google, go, Jesus, did I write that? And sometimes you look at it and go, oh, that wasn't bad. And more times you look at it and go, I wonder if I can get that taken away. You know, so it's, uh, <laughs> we, we all suffer from the same thing. Um, when I send you another mail in five years time and everybody has forgotten this episode of the podcast, where will Graham Linehan be by then, would you think?
0: Um. I, I'm hoping I'll be on my own private island paid for by the TED musical. <laughs> I mean, that's the or, – or even just enjoying my retirement because, because really, that's kind of uh, – that would be, that would be uh, nice if it was a success, you know, yeah. um, because, like, TED kind of long ago stopped paying um, paying off, you know. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to have something that, that could generate a, a pension, you know.
1: Yeah, And if that were not to happen, not that I think it's going to be a resounding success, can you ever see yourself going back to Niall Stokes and saying, look it, I can do a, review, a few reviews for you, I'll get my journalism pen out again?
0: No, I don't think I can review anything ever again. I never want to stand in judgment over another person's work ever again,
1: unless it's positive, unless I'm saying something positive. That's brilliant, Gremlin, and thank you very much indeed. Lovely to talk to you. There you go, that was indeed Graham Linehan, and it's well worth going back over the things he wrote for The Guardian and indeed on his social media about Ireland's abortion referendum to see how his writing has developed and indeed benefited from his screenwriting experience. Compelling modern journalism is all about storytelling, and that is very much a craft that he has mastered uh, by this stage in his career. As for this podcast, there will be some bonus material in the coming week or so as Sweden goes to the polls, and hopefully another interview next week with a woman who didn't so much break the glass ceiling as smash her way through it and drag all her friends up after her. But until then, I leave you with the words of former American newspaper editor, Arthur Brisbane. If you don't hit a newspaper reader between the eyes with your first sentence, then there's no need to write a second one. Have a great week.